Hola, this is Enrique Morones of Gente Unida with our brand new podcast, Buen Hombre, Magnificent Mujer. And this is our second podcast. Last week we had Buen Hombre, Hugo Castro. And this week we have Magnificent Mujer, Josefina Lopez. And she is much, much more than the person that co-authored the screenplay and wrote Real Women Have Curves. She is a really special, special woman, somebody to be a, a wonderful role model for so many people. She is a person that has directed, acted, wrote, performed all over Hollywood. She also has a studio in Boyle Heights, and it is called Casa 0101. What many people might not know is that she is a dear friend of mine. She is an artist, also a mentor to so many people, and of course, the writer of the hit movie that you cannot miss, He Tamed in the Desert. Now she is more active than ever as a spiritual health guide and mentor, somebody that has been very instrumental in the lives of many people, including yours truly. Welcome, and we have our first magnificent mujer. We save this honor especially for you, my good friend, Josefina Lopez. Josefina, how are you? You know, I, I'm happy to be alive and I have so much time to write now. And uh, I came up with a wonderful idea for a play that I can't wait to get started on. So, so I'm doing well and my kids are doing well. They're just bored, but you know, they're healthy. They're so healthy that they're, you know, they, they can complain about being bored. So. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good situation. And also happy birthday. I know you just turned 21. So that's quite an yes, accomplishment. That's right. Yeah, my, my 30th anniversary of being 21. That's right. <laughs> Well, as you may recall, I had another podcast and I've also had uh, radio shows and all that type of thing. And the first question I always like to ask is to, for the person that, I, that I'm with to tell us a little bit about themselves, even though I might know some of the answers. So who is Josefina Lopez? Well, it depends on what age, right? <laughs> I, well, at 51, I would tell you that Josefina Lopez is... Um, I guess a curandera, a, uh, a shaman in training, someone who finally has discovered her mission in life, her true mission. Uh, I've discovered a lot of things about myself. But if you were to ask me this at 21, I would tell you I'd be very, I was very confused and I just wanted to make the world better for women. If you were to ask me at 31, I would say, oh, I just want to make the world better for, for Latinos in Hollywood. At 41, you would, uh, I would say I would want to make the world better for uh, Latinos in Boyle Heights and in Los Angeles in my community. So, but I guess who I am is, uh, I like to think a, um, a bright light of hope for people. Uh, I often, I think um, uh, I'm, I'm empathic. So that means that um, people love to talk to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I have the gift that I can listen to you in a way that can, I can witness you. And in witnessing you, I can make a lot of your pain disappear. And I just thought, you know, that I was a good listener. And then as I become a wise woman, I realized, oh, no, I, I have some kind of divine ability to, uh, to listen to people. And I absorb, I guess, your negative energy and I clean it up for you and give it back to you clean. And so people love to confess stuff to me. I've, I've had so much, uh, I've had so many interesting uh, stories that people have told me because they feel comfortable that they're not being judged and they're being listened to and someone understands. And I think um, who I am is, um, I guess, is a person who, uh, who likes to understand and witness people. And in witnessing people, I get to know who they are, their truth. And then I get to learn truth. And then in my writing, I write plays and screenplays and po poems um that i get to share that truth with other other people uh who i am keeps evolving right because uh as i keep growing and um uh, so i would say that who i am today is a wise latina who happens to be a writer and an activist and a i am a a force for good that's what i'd like to think i am well you definitely are a force for good and since we've known each other for well over a decade um, I know I've confided in, in you when I've shared stories and we've shared moments uh, that I know I could trust you when I tell you some of these stories. I was telling a friend of mine the other day, I don't know if you know um, Bruno Bichir, he's Demian Bichir's brother. And I was, mm -hmm. I was checking in on him, on Demian, and I told him that uh, one of the times that I was with Demian Bichir, uh, we were talking, and there was about four of us having lunch, and I shared a story and the other people kind of blew it off. They kind of even laughed a little bit. 
And Demian picked up on my story right away. And he said, I understand what you're saying. And he, and we connected immediately that he was on mm -hmm. that same level, like you and I have. Mm -hmm. I know I've told you stuff and I think you've told me things that maybe mm -hmm. if you tell somebody else, they would take it a different way. And it's uh, something very special to have what you have in that, um, you know, when I'm talking to you, when I'm sharing stories, difficult times, good times, et cetera, I could tell that you're right there with me. And you've always given me some very, very good advice. Uh, so I really appreciate that in you and, and I wanted to thank you. And I know that uh, I've never had somebody tell me the way you just did in different decades, but it's true, we're different people in you know, different decades and so forth. That's a very powerful way of, uh, of, of saying who you are. And when I met you, I was in the audience and there was a play that you had written that my nephew was in. And that's uh -huh. how we met and how we became friends and, and you've traveled with me and, and, and so forth. And I, I remember one thing, and I wanted to maybe ask you about that. That was very, very powerful experience for me. We were in the desert and we were filming Detained in the Desert uh -huh. and it was different scenes and so forth. And there was one scene where during the scene, I saw like a bright light. And, and I remember I, I even asked the people around me, well, did you see that? And they go, what are you talking about? They didn't see anything. Well, that evening when we were talking and all of us were together, uh, when I said that, you and somebody else, I can't remember who the other person was, goes, oh yeah, around three o'clock or, or whatever that time was. And we were mm -hmm. the only three people and we were in different areas that saw that. And uh, it's those types of experiences that other people would say, oh, they're, you know, they're, you know, who knows what they're talking about. But we connected, we've connected like that many times, but it's kind of hard to explain to other people sometimes. Well, I mean, you know, I remember when you told me your stories of going to the desert and, you know, I have uh, certain psychic abilities. Uh, well, you know, I, I kind of thought I did. And then when I, I heard you speak, I started seeing things about you and about your experiences that inspired Detaining the Desert. And so I think you and I, are attuned to a higher diff different types of frequencies in our brain. Uh, I teach classes in the paranormal, so if I get to explain too many things, let me know. Okay, <laughs> but, but I think that we are attuned to certain things that other people are not attuned because their brain isn't. And I know you had uh, a near-death experience, and that often will do that to you. I might have had a near-death experience when I was a little girl. Uh, I think my mother said somebody gave me the malojo and I almost died when I was a little girl. So I don't know if I did die or if I, I was, or because I have attention deficit disorder, my brain automatically picks up on other stuff that most people don't pick up on. And that's why when I have conversations with people, most people can't relate, but people who had near death experiences or are on a spiritual path, they tend to pick up on those things too. So we're kind of a part of a little community, but I also feel because danger, and things that other people can't feel, see, or know, then also we are kind of the protectors of our community because we know something's coming way before it gets here. Uh, because oftentimes we're like, oh wait, something's about to happen, get everybody ready, get the, and oftentimes that, those were the shamans of a village or a community, right? The people were saying, oh, something's about to come, get ready, everybody, do this, do that. Uh, so I think that that's probably why we have that, that connection and that ability. Well, you know, what's amazing, as, as typical that we're talking about these types of things, for the last, I don't know, a couple of years or so, I couldn't remember what that conversation was that sparked uh -huh. the man to understand. And that's what it was. It was the near-death experience. And I was telling them about, you know, I'm not going to share it right now, but I was telling them about my near-death experience. And the other mm -hmm. people kind of just said, oh, really? And they moved on. While the man goes, oh, really? And you could tell he was interested. And he shared a personal experience. And uh, it was very, very powerful. And I've had that with other people too. And it's not something that you can just, you know, like say, oh, I'm going to go share this with so-and-so and they're going to understand. Sometimes mm -hmm. all of a sudden you just realize this person is in tune with what you're saying. Uh, this person understands. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it, it is something that, that's there. And I don't know if you develop it, you just have it. But I've always felt that with you. Yeah, you know, I was born with it, I think, because of my brain and then maybe the near-death experience that I did have. Like, but I, I actually have been developing it further. Uh, but I've also told God, um, God, use me as a vessel of light. Use me as you need me. So I, I feel like God heard the call and God said, yeah, 
your contract starts at 51. So you got to get on it. You got to go. And so I've, uh, on my birthday, I was doing some spiritual work that I won't talk about because yeah, I know, you know we want to keep it so that people understand. But I started doing my spiritual work that I'm very proud to do. And I know that that the more work I do, this kind of work that I'm doing, the more God says, well, let me give you more tools because you really are serious and you're going to get good at this and you're going to teach other people how to do this uh, when the time is right. So, so yeah. Well, that's exciting to, to know that you're going through that now. I think a lot of people know you because of your films and your writings and so forth. Maybe you could share a little bit about that. There's people that might be uh, watching this that they go, Josefina Lopez, I, I know her and, and they don't know why, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about your you started pretty young when you were started writing and, and so forth and then of course you had your biggest known play movie uh real women have curves but maybe you could start with how'd you get involved in that so um i've been a writer since i was five years old and i was born a writer because i was telling stories since i was five years old i've just been wow. so for me when i wrote my first short story i was eight years old and then i when i was 11 i directed starred in, produced a short play in my backyard with my cousins, in actually my cousin's backyard. And, and I realized, oh my God, I love plays. So I wrote my first play at 11, because the other kids were like, well, it's another one. <laughs> so I started writing. And then um, I started to write all sorts of things. But at 17, I wanted to tell my story because I wanted, I wanted to go to college and my dad didn't believe women should be educated because, you know, what a waste of money to educate a woman when she's going to get married and that's going to be it for her life. That was his thinking because my dad didn't have an education and his world was tiny, you know? So I, so, uh, so I wrote a play. Frustrating it was to be a Latina who had brains and creativity and all this ability and and rather than my parents being happy that they had a really bright daughter who wanted to do amazing things, they thought I was crazy. They thought, oh, esta loca. <gasps> you know, like uh, all my life, I think my parents thought I was crazy until uh, my movie got made and it was in the movie theaters and they're like, oh wow, she's not crazy. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, my parents were concerned for me because they just didn't know what to do with me. And, uh, and because I had attention, you know, I have attention deficit disorder, which I think is really like psychic ability. I've, I've spoken to a lot of psychics and they all have ADD and they're like, no, no, honey, that's psychic ability. There's just the medical profession has to call it something. And so they call it ADD, but it's a sensitivity that you have because your brain can pick up on all kinds of stuff that it's supposed to filter your frontal lobe is supposed to filter it out and it, and it doesn't. So therefore it's a disorder. Anyway. So, uh, yeah, so I wrote my first play at seven, at 17, it got produced at 18, and then I just kept on writing. And then I wrote Real Women Have Curves when I was 19, and then I did many rewrites, and then at 21 it was produced. And right before it was even gonna open, I had a producer from Warner Brothers who was interested in the, in, in the play to turn it into a movie. But it took about 11 years, and then 11 years later, uh, the movie got made and it won all kinds of awards. Uh, I've written over 20 plays, over 20 screenplays. I've written tons of poetry. I do speeches. I, you know, I've written a lot of essays. So I, I just write, write, write. But I'm also an artist. I also paint. I also design. I, I, I have, a, I like to think I'm a Renaissance woman. If that's another title, that would be it. Because uh, my brain is just constantly picking up ideas. I'm, I'm so creative that, and part of it is because my brain is so fast. And it's so hungry for stimulation that it constantly has to be creating something in order to stay awake. Because, you know, when I was on medication for ADD, I, I was taking the same medication that uh, narcolepsy, <laughs> you know, like people who fall asleep. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Like I'm, I'm taking narcolepsy. <laughs> and I go, oh, it's because my brain is so fast. It constantly needs stimulation. Otherwise it just goes, ooh. <laughs> mm. and, uh, and it's funny because now that I have a child, who has ADD, uh, my poor child is so creative, so smart, and he's just so understimulated. And so, uh, so I understand a lot about myself watching my child go through the same experiences I, I have. So yeah, uh, people know me as a writer. 
Um, but, you know, I'm also the artistic director of Casa 0101 Theater, which is a theater that I started in my community, Oil Heights. I started this theater to give a voice to, um, to our community because uh, the reputation of this community was that that's where the drive-bys happened. That at, you know, every time you heard Boyle Heights in the news, it was always like, uh, if, there, if there's not a traffic jam, an accident, it was a drive-by. Mm. And there was nothing good being said about my community that I said, I wanna change the narrative. So it's, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna do amazing things there. And so uh, with my ex-husband, he and I started this theater and, uh, and we, we produced over 200 plays. And I'm very proud to say that we probably gave the most, we have given the most opportunities to Latino actors in Los Angeles. There's so many wonderful theaters uh, that do that, but I think we're, we're leading the way. We also have created the most Latino playwrights or at least given Latino playwrights their first chance to get produced. We've also educated the women to write, direct, and produce, and empowered them to see themselves as bigger than just you know an actor or writer, but to really see themselves as someone who's capable of creating their own career, creating their own their own opportunities, like I did. And uh, we also uh, I mentored a young woman who uh, I think wrote the first trilingual play in the country, maybe even the world, uh, that deals with. Um, well, it's an English, Spanish, and American Sign Language that deals with be, both being undocumented and being deaf mm -hmm. and the challenges of, of be, living in all these worlds where you don't belong. And, and then we also did the first, I'm pretty sure we did the first Latino LGBTQ theater festival. Um, and we've mentored the most LGBTQ Latino writers in the country. So we really have been pioneers in, in the theater because you know there are so few women in the theater as directors, uh yeah there's such a inequality in the theater and in hollywood and so i figured that you know empowering women to be directors and producers is one way we can transform the image of latinos and latina women you've always walked the talk and, and i've been to your theater i've seen plays there you even offered the theater for hosting us when we were on one of our marcha migrantes as we were traveling mm -hmm. across the country and it's curious because just this morning I was in touch with Edward James Olmos' office to have him be on the podcast in the future. And I remember he came when we had the, the grand opening of the play, the premiere of the, of the movie, of the, oh, yeah. the Chinese theater. Well, he, it was his festival, so he had to be there. Oh, okay. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I didn't realize that, but I was talking oh, to Paula. But he, was, but he did. He did. He was gracious enough to open it up because he, someone else could have done it, but he was there. So in that sense... That was very, very, very appreciated. And he's been with me out in the desert putting water and so forth. So I met him a few times. But getting back to your groundbreaking work, you've always been committed to promoting diversity. And, and, and uh, I, I don't know as a man, but, I, but I've learned that, you know, the, the, the women trying to make it in Hollywood, and, if, and then if you're a woman of color, even harder, etc. Have you seen very much progress since when you finally did get Real Women Have Curves on the screen? to today, have you seen very much progress? There is progress um, because there are more women executives. It really comes down to more women becoming executives, more people of color becoming executives. The progress has been with, with people moving up the ladder. Uh, I, don't, I do think that there are some people who are conscious and wise who do want to have a world that's equitable for everyone. But I don't see that, I, for a lot of uh, white men, I think they're like, um, they want to see themselves as the heroes of their story. That's how come we constantly see the same freaking story of the white guy saving the world. And I'm like, no, the white guys are not going to save the world. They messed up the world. It's going to be women and people of color. They're going to save the world. Absolutely. Why don't we tell that story now? You know? Uh, but no, like, I think they always want to be the heroes because, you know, like I tell people, I used to go to Sundance, the film festival, right? And they'd always have the same freaking story, which is the white guy trying to get laid trying to get, loses virginity. And I go, oh, oh my God, like, wow, that story again. Ah, you know, like that story took the place of a story about a person of color fighting injustice, you know, uh, a story about rape, but you know, like, oh wow, a white guy trying to get laid, you know, that's the story. And I just was a little sick of it. And I said, oh, it's because usually uh, the people that watch the films, you know, that they, the, the people that filter out all the films, 
a lot of them are young men from college and just graduated. This is their job. And so of course they identify with that story. That's how come that story is showing up because that's what they want to see. They want to get laid. And, you know, some people say I'm a little vulgar and I go, I don't care. Let me tell it to you straight. You know, uh, oftentimes the, the reason we see the portrayal of women that's so bad is because Hollywood caters to young men, to a mentality of young men. And, you know, if men, young men can't buy sex, then the closest they get to is fantasizing about having sex with the most beautiful, thinnest, whitest woman they can, because that's the trophy in our society. So that's how come uh, the images of women are so bad. And, and it's finally women becoming screenwriters, producers. And the thing is, is that where real change is gonna happen is when we have access to the money to distribute things. Money and distribution. Because right now, like everybody can make a movie. There are so many women who can direct, write and produce, who have amazing stories. But if no one's gonna finance their movies, that's progress isn't happening fast enough because of that. And part of it is because there's still this belief that men are leaders and women are followers. And a lot of men have trouble letting a woman telling, uh, having a woman telling them what to do. And I know that personally, because I, you know, since I was a little girl, I've told people what to do because I've, I was born a leader. And I, and I know this because, uh, you know, when I was a little girl, I'd always be the captain of every team I was in or, or the boys wouldn't want me on their team because they'd be like, what, what's this girl? What, what does she think she could be on our team? And then they go, oh, shoot, this girl can catch and this girl can take a ball to the face and get hit in the face and not cry. Wow. Or this girl is fearless. And I think uh, I've always had these qualities of a leader. Uh, and that's how come, uh, um, you know, I often can tell people what to do <laughs> because I know what's going to happen. And I also have a knowing that sometimes scares people. I'm not always right because I'm not God, but I do have a knowing about how you do things and how you do things in a way that will get results. And oftentimes, you know, men will always question you because they're like, oh no, like you're too pretty to be that smart or that brave or that whatever, or, or you're a girl, like what would you, and I'd be like, oh my God, like when is this package not gonna matter, you know? Uh, and listen to me, I know what I'm telling you. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think that's also it, is that not enough progress has been made because women are always doubted. And because we're not valued, um, you know, our stories don't matter. And I've been trying to do, tell stories about Latinos and women for over 30 years, and it's been painfully difficult, you know, really difficult because uh, when people say, how come we don't have this? How come I go, I wrote that story 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I, I was telling those stories. So it's not that they're not there, is that no one wants to finance them. Maybe now they're finally getting it like, oh, wow, like it's going to make money. Oh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I can go on and on this. I, ha I think I have to write a book about this um, because uh, I've, been, I've been witnessing things for 30 years. And, and when people ask, well, why this? I go, well, let me give you the answer. Sit down because it's a, long, <laughs> it's a long answer. And you have to know the economics. You have to know so many things to connect all the dots to understand why things are the way they are in Hollywood and why they haven't changed. Because I thought 30 years later, things would have changed and they've changed a little bit. Uh, I do see that there's a lot of progress for African-Americans. I do think that's great. Uh, they fought really hard, but I do feel that for Latinos, very little progress has been made. I really feel like, ugh, like it's just frustrating. You know, it's like um, so much more progress should have been made by now. I agree. And uh, sometimes you take one step forward, two steps back, and it's not our fault. I, I, I come from the baseball world and part of my life. And I would say the same thing. How come there's not more Latinos in this and that? And I go, because you don't have Latinos in decision-making positions. And unless they're at the top, they're not going to see what you see. Like when you, when you bring it up, when I would bring it up in meetings, they would go, oh, there's Enrique again. And nothing would happen. Uh, but then I said, you got to get people of color in these leadership positions because they know what it's like. A, a, a person of color, a woman, a, a person that's gay you got to get them in these positions because they know what it's really like. You don't want some white guy telling you what it's like, what it's like to be a Latino or, or et cetera. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. In your career, which has been um, you know, fantastic and the many things that you've done, who do you see as some of your influences? You know, when you're thinking, when you, when you were younger, you, know, you talked about the different decades. You know, maybe when you were younger, besides maybe family members, you were saying, oh, that person that lives down the street or, or that person I saw in 
who would you see as some of your influences, positive well, my, influences? My, my role model, my influence was Luis Valdez, as far as being a writer, you know, and starting his own theater and making right. things happen, giving opportunities and the wisdom that he brought. So I would say that definitely he was my inspiration. Uh, but to be honest with you, um, I didn't have a lot of role models. I didn't have a lot of people because what I was attempting to do, I didn't know that many people. Um, maybe Moctezuma Esparza, who has produced over 50 films, who's probably the, the most successful Latino Chicano uh, producer. So I would say him as well. Um, but I knew very early on that I was going to have to be my own role model. The things I was going to set out to do, maybe no one had done yet, or was, um, or, or maybe, you know, the other thing too is that people always focus on one thing. They do it very well and that's it. And when you have ADD, you can't focus on just one thing because you get bored out of your mind. All right. So I do a lot of different, often people will discourage you and tell you, oh, no, no, you got to focus. You got to do one. And I go, then you live a really insular, tiny world. And for me, I decided that I was going to create my own masterpiece by creating the life that I wanted. So, you know, that's why come I, I, I do stand-up comedy. I, you know, I do painting, I poetry. And it's all in the arts world, but I also have taken a bunch of other classes in other fields because I'm constantly expanding my world. And I often think that if you really want to be great at something, you've got to learn from other fields and bring those things into that one thing you're doing to, to expand this vision, you know. Um, and I think my gift is that I'm able to incorporate so many different things. Uh, and I see the connection between so many things. I think that's what surprises people is that most people can't connect the dots and I can connect a lot of dots very quickly because I'm able to think in so many different ways. And, and anyway, that's my gift. So yeah, so I feel like I set out to be my own role model. When I was a little girl and my parents would tell me that I was crazy or no, you can't do that. I would uh, imagine that I was gonna be this amazing woman like 40, 50 years later. And then that, that older woman would talk to the young girl and tell her everything's gonna be all right. You're gonna be great. You can do it. And, and having me be my own role model, talking to my younger self as, as an exercise, I would get the courage to do the things that I, I'm doing now. Um, so, so yeah, so I would say that that's, that's what I've done. Are there some times that, you're, that uh, I've had a little bit of this in my life, when somebody comes up to you and you don't really remember meeting them, but they, they met you and they'll tell you something that you did or said and how much it influenced their lives. You know, like maybe a, a young Chicana coming up to you, maybe you're in your theater or, or you know, they see you in some place and they'll say, one time you did this and you're really surprised by that. That Because uh, I've had a couple of times where they tell me this and I'm thinking, oh, I didn't realize that that had influenced somebody in that manner. Most of the time it's inspiration and so forth. But every once in a while you get surprised. Can you think of any cases like that? Yes, I, I've had many, many instances. I usually can remember because I, I tend to have a really good memory. As I get older, of course, it's like menopause is coming in and you're like, oh my God, my mind. Like a, uh, yeah, somebody told me this one thing that I'll make it really short and I'll try not to be so uh, vulgar or graphic, but um, I was at Sundance and there was a famous movie, a Latino movie. I, I don't want to mention the name of the person because um, out of respect for them, you know, um, not because, you know, anything sinister or private. Anyway, so I, um, I, it, it was, it got a, a huge applause and it was, it was so wonderful. And everyone was thanking as usual, like the audience is always praising the actors and the director. And I was so annoyed because nothing gets done without the writer. And when a writer is so good, they've done such a great job, they make everyone believe that they don't need them. Kind of like your mother, your mother did everything for you and then you realize, ah, I raised myself, I did it all by myself, ha, 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 right? The dad gets all the credit, whatever. Children get the, but the mom, nobody. So it's kind of like that. So I raised my hand and I acknowledged the writer. And I told everyone how nobody cares about the act, the writer because everyone takes the writer for granted and that the writer is the most important person. And I basically like 
said something that caught everybody off guard. And I said it in a way that was kind of vulgar, but it really made people listen. And, uh, and so the writer was so grateful that she had an opportunity to say something about her film because everyone was asking the director about the film. What do you, you know, and the actors, but no one was asking the writer. So why did you write it? Like, why? And so she was so grateful for that. So years later at an event, she acknowledged me for posing that question. Otherwise she wouldn't, she wasn't going to get a chance to say anything. That's a great story. So I was like, oh, that's good. Like, I'm glad, you know, like. Very powerful story. I, like, I would never would have thought of that. And that's an example of, unless you're in that position, you might not think of that. Because I would have been probably like the, the next person thinking about the actors and the director. Yeah, everyone's like, oh my God, you're so cute. You're so great. You're like that, that, and, and, and the director, oh, how did you do, 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 do you know? And, and the writer's just kind of there going, wow. Like, you know, when I was at Sundance, and the reason I know is because when I was at Sundance, no one wanted to take my picture. The photographers say, oh, we don't photograph the writer. We only photograph the actors and the director. Mm. And this constantly everywhere. And I'm like, uh, first of all, I'm actually nice looking, you know? So maybe you expect writers to be ugly and that's how come we don't take our picture. But uh, I, I was like, wait a minute, I'm the writer. And I was also in the movie. I had a cameo, so take my picture. And the photographer said, oh, we don't usually do that. And this was like the LA Times. And I was like, uh... I said, well, I should like, and then he said, you know, you're kind of pretty. I'll take your picture. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, like the, mm -hmm. the fact that I wrote this, my life that I, I've, I've, this play was so successful. doesn't merit me being in, in, in the newspaper. It's because I'm pretty and you felt sorry for me. Wow. Like, anyway, you know, that's, that's the reason why the writer's guild magazine puts writers on the cover because everyone takes writers for granted. So they say, no, we want people to see the photos. Even if it's just a bunch of white guys most of the time, you know, they try to put like people of color too uh, on the cover to say, look, these, somebody wrote those amazing lines that you think those actors came up with. Somebody wrote that. That's really interesting. And, and talking about writers, recently we were together up in Los Angeles and I was with a group of friends and, and you met them and so forth. One of them is a, a muralist, uh, Mario Torero. Uh, very uh, well-known uh, muralist painter and so forth. And, and I know that you're collaborating, you're thinking about a, a mural, a mural to talk about the, the power of the woman. Or, yeah. or how would you interpret the, the mural that you're thinking about? Well, I was thinking that, you know, since this mural, famous mural is we are not a minority, that it should be, we are not a stereotype. And that it should have a woman uh, kind of in the same way as that mural uh, and basically she's just saying, look, when I'm not a stereotype, you know, I'm not the maid, the hot senorita. I'm not the, 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 the mother of the cholo who just got killed, who's crying over the, uh, you know, the coffin. I am more than that. I am a complex human being with, uh, so much to offer to society so much that you cannot reduce me to uh, a stereotype. I am this goddess. I am a goddess, you know? Um, I, and also the way Latinas are portrayed, we're portrayed as whores, like constantly. That's like a white guy, I guess, when he thinks of a Latina, he thinks about how hot she is or, or the cleaning lady. But that, those are the two extremes of what a Latina is to a white guy, right? So I guess he got laid to a white, you know, to a Latina prostitute in Tijuana on the spring break. I don't know, like maybe that's why, you know, these screenwriters, you know? So to me, I feel like, like say, no, we are not a whore, we are a goddess. You know, uh, I'm 51 years old and I can tell you that the kinds of things that I'm capable of doing, you know, like I gave birth naturally, right? And I know women did that forever before the invention of the, of all this pain medication, including the epidural. And, but I remember when I, I decided to give birth naturally and I, it was this excruciating pain, but I do remember that every time the contractions came in, I remember feeling and seeing this column of light coming into me. It was as if this white light was coming into me and it was trying to open me up so that this soul could come in through me, that I was basically a portal, uh, that my child was gonna come through me. So I had to be expanded energetically, physically. And I remember um, 
telling myself, thank you. Like every time a contraction came, I said, thank you. I gave gratitude and in giving gratitude, uh, it wasn't as painful. And then when I gave birth naturally and I pushed out the baby, I felt like, oh my God, I just like did this incredible thing. I just connected to God. God sent me a child, like an elevator, whoop, came out of me. And I'm like, oh, I did it. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I, I am so powerful because if I could tolerate that much pain, give life to a child and here he is, oh my God. <laughs> and then I could go have dinner six hours later with my in-laws, like nothing happened. Oh my God, I'm fearless. Every woman is a superhero and a goddess. And the other thing is, um, you know that someone said that giving birth naturally is, is like getting shot by a bullet. <laughs> And that kind of pain is the, the equivalent. Like someone shoots you and you're like, ah. and I said, wow. And I willingly did it so that my son could be born naturally and not have any complications because of the you know, medication. I willingly took a bullet uh, so I could give birth to a healthy son. Wow. Tell me I'm not a superhero. Tell me not every woman here is not a superhero, right? So yeah. So reducing women to whores is the way you disempower women so that they forget that they are goddesses. And, and now, as a goddess, which you are, um, you're, you're transitioning into a little bit of a different stage of your life. You've always done it, but now you're, you're a little more focused on it. And that's with your spirituality and, and focused mm -hmm. on that. How is that going to affect, are you still going to be involved in, in the theater and, and so forth? Or are you going to be more focused on a spiritual guide type of uh, lifestyle? Well, you know, to me... I love to teach writing because writing is therapy and spirituality all wrapped up in one under the guise of, of writing, right? So I think I will always be a writing teacher because I, I believe people can heal themselves through storytelling. When I point out to people the story that you are living, like everybody's living in a story, but we don't know it, right? Everyone has a trauma drama, what I call trauma drama. You have a trauma that you experienced at five years old, and you keep recreating it every, all the time with different characters, but it's the same drama until you have the awareness that you're, you have a trauma that you have to heal until you have that awareness that you're recreating it. And then you stop recreating it because you get it. You forgive yourself. You have this insight, this epiphany, then you stop that drama. And so oftentimes, um, I just point out to people how they created this, how this trauma was created, how they create the drama, and you write a play about it, and then you make a better choice. You forgive yourself. You make a better choice. You can you can dispel that drama. It's like it disappear. So I do a lot of my healing through storytelling, and um, and people don't know it. People just think it's it's wonderful. It's a creative exercise. It's the way we fool ourselves so that we can, our ego. Uh, doesn't get in the way of us healing something. So a lot of my writing is already spiritual healing, but I am also doing um, much deeper healing now. I've been called to do um, a healing that requires um, a lot of these abilities that not a lot of people have. And I feel they've been given to me so that I can help people so that I can clear them of a lot of darkness. That's going to be the easiest way I can tell you what I do. I, um, there's a lot of darkness in this world and we're seeing a lot of it right now, but uh, I've been called, uh, I do feel I've been called the uh, kind of like a priest who gets called to do something very specific in their field. I've been called to use these gifts. And then, you know, I've had many past lives. I I'm also a past life regression hypnotherapist. I certified and I, this is one of my gifts is that because I know stories so well, I'm able to uh, work with people to quickly find out what kind of past lives you had and how that past life is affecting this one and why you're living and learning what you're learning in this life versus what you didn't know in the last one and how you failed in the last one in terms of empathy. So uh, in many past lives, I, I used to do this kind of work and I really feel that as a child, I knew that God wanted me to, to, do, to do God's work. I, I've always felt like, oh no, I'm here to do God's work and I want to get to it. And I've been trying to get to this work, but I was told divinely that not yet. Like I had to get, I, had, I guess I had to get married. I had to have children. 
I had to do all these other things before I got to this work because I guess it's very tough work that requires incredible commitment and courage. I, I guess I wasn't allowed to do it until I was mature enough and wise enough. And so I guess at 51, it was like, you know, I feel like um, the Josefina Lopez that you know, she didn't end at 50, but it's almost like I'm tr transitioning out of, you know, I was, I am an activist because I go, what I am doing is being an activist for God. <laughs> I feel like, no, what I'm doing is, is still being an activist, but at a much more profound level. Um, so yeah, no, so I'm, uh, I'm, I, I think I'm going to be doing some other type of healing that's going to require even a bigger commitment, but it's going to be gradual. But yeah, I'm going to, I've been told that I have to continue writing, that writing is the way I also inspire other people to heal themselves. Uh, and yeah, cause I, the more, I am amazed that my play has been done like over a hundred times. Real Women Have Curves has had over a hundred productions. And I go, wow, there's been at least 500 who were by this play whose lives probably have been changed because of it. Taking off your clothes in front of people and doing this play forces you to have to love yourself or at least look at yourself in a way that's more empowering than the way society tells you to look at yourself. So I like, uh, yeah, writing is probably the way I, uh, I continue with healing, but, but now I'm going to be, you know, I'm like, uh, I've been training as a shaman. Uh, I've been um, taking courses and just being guided and just learning things on my own too. I do feel that, that God does speak to me. You know, I remember somebody made fun of me. Like I'm sure they made fun of you, Enrique, when I told someone that a God speaks to me. And, and I remember, you know, I thought I was crazy. Like, oh, like why would God speak to you? And then I said to him, God speaks to everyone except I'm willing to listen. When God tells you to feed a homeless person, when God tells you to help someone who's helpless, you know, that, you know, whenever you hear that impulse to help someone who's helpless, God's speaking to you, right? It's as simple as that. But some of us are just saying, oh God, you're right. I should do something. I will do something, right? So God is speaking to every single one of us, except very few of us want to because when we do listen, then we have to feel the pain and suffering of others. And most people don't want to feel it. And, and I'll tell you, I'm empathic and I constantly feel people's pain that sometimes I do have to shut it off because it's, as a little girl, I, I suffered from depression because I would feel people's pain all the time and it was too much as a little girl. As a 51 year old woman, I'd be like, you know, now I can be with your pain because I realized that I don't have to take it all for you, from you. Or, or, or see you as helpless, I can say, wow, you're feeling all this pain and, and acknowledging your pain. But, I, but also in seeing how you, um, if you're feeling all this pain and all these things are happening to you, to some degree, you wanted this experience. And I know that's hard for people to, to hear, understand, that sometimes these horrible experiences, sometimes as a, on a soul level, we wanted these experiences so that we could learn courage, so that we could learn love, so that we can learn compassion and empathy kindness and patience you know uh so sometimes i know for me whenever i'm feeling something an emotion that's like Argh! then i stop and i go okay what is the blessing and as soon as i say what's the blessing and i look at okay what am i learning i'm learning courage or i'm learning patience or i'm learning unconditional love then i go oh okay okay this is a test for me to learn unconditional love once i get that that's what i'm getting it's not so painful anymore i go oh, okay this person that I'm having, uh, I realize, oh, okay, they're teaching me to love them anyway. Despite their flaws, despite the fact that they don't understand things at the level that I do, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong. They're just, they're just, they just got here. They're a soul who just got here. They're early on their journey. Therefore, why would you, if you were a college professor, why would you get pissed off at a first grader for asking you a question that, ah, that you wish they already know by the time they got here? You say, okay, they're a first grader. I'm gonna tell them the answer at a first grade level. I'm not gonna get pissed off at them for being a first grader because it's not their fault. If I'm a professor and I see that they're a first grader, I'm not gonna make them wrong. I'm just gonna say, okay, then let me come to you at this level without talking down to you, respectfully. And, and that has helped me so much. Anyway, uh, I think I'm rambling, but, <laughs> no, <laughs> but yeah. I, I totally understand, as you know, this, this last year has been the most difficult one in my 
life. But I like the, uh, the, the, what you said, one of the things that you said that I'm gonna start using, activist for God, activist for God. I, I really like that, that, that saying. And oftentimes um, when I, I am listening and, and God's telling me something and I do it, and then I go, oh yeah, now, now I understand. A, a quick example was the other day I was downtown here in San Diego and I saw a homeless person and he was, his clothes were literally ragged and mm -hmm. he was yelling and screaming and, and I wanted to help him out a little bit, but I was scared. I was scared, but I still wanted to connect with him. So I drove over to him, instead of walking to him, lowered my window and I gave him a little bit of food and so forth. And he was the gentlest soul. Like when I, when I spoke to him, the way he spoke to me, I thought, wow, I, I was totally wrong about being scared and so on and so forth. And it reminded me of one thing that Mother Teresa said. With Mother Teresa, in, in a book I read about her, she said that somebody asked her, why when you're working with the, the leopards and the, the, the most poor people in the world, you always have a face of, of love and happiness and, and so forth. And she said, because when I'm dealing with that person, I'm looking at Christ. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. well, I've, I've never, ever thought that. I, I, you know, I've, I've always just wanted to help the person and so forth. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But it brought me back to that and how um, sometimes these, these uh, preconceived um, notions you may have are totally wrong. Mm -hmm. so you really do have to listen. You do have to listen, and then it's up to you if you're going to act on what you hear or not. So uh, I've always listened to what you have to say, Josefina. As you know, I love you very much. I really appreciate being your friend. And in closing, if people want to get a hold of you, if they want to maybe go to your theater or read some of your books, are there websites or, or, or you know, Casa, you know, your, your theater? Yes. So uh, for the theater, it's Casa01 and Casa Like House, 0101.org. And right now, because obviously of the virus, we, we have to postpone our productions. Um, so that's where they can get the information. Uh, when I do teach a class, it's listed under adult, adult classes. Um, I have a website. I still have to keep working on it. It's, you know, I, I'm terrible at remembering passwords. I'm really good at so many things, but I go, what's my password for my website? Ah. Anyway, I have to go update it. But it's josefinalopez.biz, B-I-Z, like business biz. Uh, that's the website I have right now. And then uh, I have a restaurant or, you know, uh, a restaurant that I go to all the time called Casa Fina I love restaurant. restaurant. Yeah, it's, it's a great restaurant. I mean, I was, my inspiration is that I wanted to turn it into a cultural center, art gallery, museum. And so if you go in there, it's incredibly colorful and beautiful. And I, you know, I actually, that, the inspiration for that restaurant was that after Trump said what he said and he became president, I was like, you know what? the most radical thing you can do as a person of color during these times, these, this Trump administration is to love yourself and to love your life and love who you are. So I wanted to create a restaurant that as soon as you walk in, you're in Mexico and you, and I just said, I want to love my culture, celebrate my culture and be as Mexican as I can be. And this restaurant is really the celebration of Mexican and Chicano culture. So yeah, casafinarestaurant.com. Uh, and then what else? And then, um, my plays are available on Amazon. Just go to Amazon, look up Josefina Lopez, and my 10 plays are there. I'm working on my anthology of plays, the third one, so I'll have like 15 plays. But anyway, all my plays are on Amazon, so you can purchase them there if you're interested. Uh, I'm also, you know, I'll tell you what I'm doing now because I'm sure we're signing off, is uh, I'm, I'm trying to sell the TV show of Real Women Have Curves, so I'm working on that. I'm trying to sell a show based on my novel called Hungry Woman in Paris, which will be called Hungry Woman. Isn't that and I'm trying to do novel? a show about, it's my first novel, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm trying to do a show with a co-writer about sex therapists, female sex therapists. And then I have a movie at Sony that's an animation movie that we just sold um, I have a, with a co-writer. And then I have, a, uh, with my co-writer of Real Women Have Courage, we have another movie called Lola Goes to Roma, which mm -hmm. we hope to make uh, next year. And we're looking for financing. Anybody has a lot of money? Lola Goes to Roma. It's incredible. It's incredible. I wrote that movie for Lupe. Unfortunately, Lupe passed away. So we rewrote it. And uh, anyway, it's to be a funny film, a really great film. But I'm always writing and working on everything. Uh, you know, I will always be a writer. And 
but my activism and my spiritual work are going to kind of take, well, I've been told they have to be balanced, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Anyway. One of the big rumors that I hear out there is the reason detained in the desert didn't become a bigger movie or we won't have a, a, another version of it is because George Clooney wasn't available to play my part. <laughs> that true? That true? That's right. Well, you know, it, I put my heart into it. We all did. And I think what was, you know, obviously you need movie stars to get a movie distributed. That's the sad reality, right? But I also get that because the movie was very sad and tragic that it's hard. It was hard to get it out there. I couldn't believe I couldn't get into certain festivals. They were run by my own friends. Like, and I realized, why did they pick my movie? And I go, it's because it's depressing, you know? And, and I go, okay. So I realized that I think almost everything I do now has to deal with horror because people are interested in horror and like, and, but also comedies. I really think that that's the way to go with, with every story is it's gotta be so funny that makes people swallow that pill easier. Um, because right now we're living in yeah, I love to take the desert. Huh? I love right to take the desert. Times like that with the, with the uh, the coronavirus, and I really believe that during these times that we're living right now, you're gonna see the goddesses, you know, clearly. You're gonna see the women take a leadership role, and people are gonna be saying, you know, they were there all along. Why didn't we listen? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think when we run out of things to do from a male linear perspective, we're gonna go, oh, we have to, you know how Einstein said it best, right? The problems that are created today cannot be solved with the same type of thinking that created them. So I tell people, you know, how you solve problems is you're gonna to have to take a, a person of color, non-linear, non-Western way of thinking in order to solve that problem. And that's who we are. We're people of indigenous people, people of color. We're going to have to tap into spirit in order to solve a physical problem we created um, because uh, we can't solve it in the same way that we created it. Well, Josefina, thank you very much for spending time with us. You can uh, listen to Buen Hombre Magnificent Mujer at buenhombre.org or magnificentmujer.org. And, uh, and, uh, and I wish you the best in your future thank endeavors. You. Happy birthday, belated birthday once again. I love you and I know there's lots of light up ahead. We just gotta be open our eyes and pay attention. Did you hear Sarah? She has a question for you. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, that was so amazing. I was like crying. <laughs> um, we made a logo for Magnificent Mujer and I used your picture. So I'll share it oh. with you because we would be so honored if you would be our, our Magnificent Mujer. Sure. I'd be happy to. Hey, Josefina, muchas gracias. Give my love to your, your children and uh, hope to see you again soon. Dios te bendiga. Thank you. Gracias. Okay, gracias. Bye. Bye. Adios. Adios. You can find Buen Hombre Magnificent Mujer not only on our site, Buen Hombre Magnificent Mujer, Org, but also on TuneIn, Ditcher, Spotify, and coming soon, Apple Podcast. So please be sure to tune in every Tuesday as we bring in influence makers, heroes, human rights icons to share their inspiring stories. Amor, si se puede. And don't forget that love is an action, not just a word. On behalf of producer Sarah Bella and yours truly, host Enrique Morones, welcome to Buen Hombre, Magnificent Mujer.